0: Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the Worship Arts Pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Well, let's let's pray together this morning. Father, I... um, I'm so grateful to be able to worship you today. Father, that last song reminded me of um, tragedy in in the States with 19 children killed and two uh, teachers, and um, it's hard to reconcile that evil with your goodness. But I lift up those families to you, Father, and I ask that you wrap your arms around them that even in this great evil, they would experience your goodness, that they would experience your peace, that somehow you would overcome the tragedy. And so it seems impossible, but we know that darkness cannot stop light. So I pray for the service today, Father, I ask that in this place, nothing of darkness would remain but that your light would come, that you would shine a light, a purifying light, a refining light, a fire of holiness, that we would be refined, to be made more like you, Lord Jesus. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak and to move. I ask that we would hear your voice, and that we would be encouraged and equipped, convicted if necessary, so that we can live the way we are always called and meant to live. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let me start by asking you, you know, I always like to do this. I always ask questions. draws you in. So when you think of church, what do you imagine? What comes into your head when you think of the church? I think for a lot of people, if someone was to say, you know, if you're out walking and they said, you know, uh, what does what a church mean to you? You'd probably think of this building. You'd probably think of this structure that you go to church at, you know, maybe you'd think of the sanctuary um, or me preaching or one of the pastors preaching or or you'd think of the worship, and those are all valid things to think about when you think of church. But then when you read the scriptures and, and you read the letters from Paul or Peter or John to the churches, you might also imagine those same things, right? We try and kind of imagine what the church would look like in the early church, and Um, sometimes we kind of have an image of like, oh, it's basically like what we do, but it's definitely not. (laughs) You know, the early church looked a lot different uh, from how we do church. And they probably functioned a lot differently than how we structure and function the church today. Now, we're coming out of two years of uncertainty brought about by a pandemic. And through that pandemic, the church had to look different. Church services had to be presented differently than how we were used to doing church, and that created a lot of tension and even anger in some cases. What I would like to present to you today is that some of that tension and anger came from maybe not fully understanding what it really means to be church and what church is ultimately all about and what church is really for. And so now that we're getting back into a more normal routine and rhythm of church life, I think it's really valuable for us to ask the question, what exactly is church? What specifically do we do in the church, and what is the church for? So maybe we could start today by understanding something about the word church. The word church doesn't exist in scriptures. Now you're like, wait, my Bible has church all over it. Let me explain this. The Greek word that we translate into church is ecclesia, and of course we always take English words and we always take Greek words and translate them into English. And you're like, yeah, okay. So ecclesia means church, but ecclesia in in Greek, in the New Testament, Koine Greek, means a called-out assembly or a set-apart assembly of people. When William Tyndale was doing his first English translation of the Bible in 1525, when he came to the word ecclesia, he translated it not as church, but he used the word congregation rightly understanding that the ecclesia receiving the letters of the apostles was not being sent to a building, it wasn't being sent to a place, it was being sent to a people. All the people in the city of Corinth are the ecclesia, they are the church, it's not limited to a building, a place, or a structure, it is the people. So that's how he translated it. So how do we get to church from that? Because I think he's right, William Tyndale got it, it's like it's not a building, it's not a structure, it is the people, it is the called out assembly. But it was, in, um, it was King James in 1611 who insisted on using the English word uh, churche or church in it, for ecclesia. In Middle English, that word churche comes from the Old English. I'm going to, I don't know how to say this, serice or serich, uh, meaning, and what that actually meant in the English language, if you were in Old English or Middle English, you would say, well, that is a religious structure. It's a religious place. It's a building or a temple. And so what is lost in our translation then, when we envision church, we start to envision church then as a building, as a place, as a structure, and maybe we lose that sense that the church ultimately isn't a building or a structure or a place, but it's a people. So what is church then? Well, the church is the ecclesia, the group of people who've been called out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light through faith in Jesus, And it doesn't matter if you meet in a church building, in a school, in a park, or in a home. It doesn't matter if you structure your services through liturgy and hymns, or if you do spontaneous prayer and contemporary worship. It doesn't matter if you meet as three people or 3,000 people. The church is not defined by the building it meets in, or the style of worship they engage in, or the size of congregation that they have. The church is defined as the people of God, the called-out assembly, All those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light are the ecclesia. They are the church. So we read in scripture that Paul's writing to the church in some Roman city. He's he's writing to the ecclesia. He's not writing necessarily to a specific place. I mean, there were certain homes that he probably had in mind as he's writing this to. But he's writing to all those who would call themselves followers of Jesus in that city. Who are most likely meeting in someone's house or in multiple homes across the city, they would have eaten meals together, and when they gathered together there would be a room, uh, there would be room for everyone in the, in the body to participate. Paul says this to the Ecclesia in Corinth. He says, "When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation." everything must be done so the church may be built up. And I love that structure of the church where when you come, you participate. You are part of the church. You come prepared to minister to one another through the gifts that the Father has given you. However, Scripture doesn't just paint the church as an assembly of people. There's a really dominant theme, kind of a a metaphor used to describe this group of people called the church. Is there any guesses on what what kind of the theme of the church is. What is. How do the writers think of the church? They see it as a family. The Apostle Paul uses the term brothers and sisters 139 times in his letters. Five times Paul says, we need to greet each other with a holy kiss. I wonder why we don't obey Paul in that. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> there you go. Had to change some stuff. But, you know, the idea that Paul is getting across is that we are really a family. We are a set apart people, we are a family. And we don't want to dismiss, I think sometimes what we do is we dismiss Paul's language of brothers and sisters as sort of just being flowery language or a nice way to begin a letter. But it's clear that Paul and the other writers of the New Testament letters really see the church as a new family for people to belong to because we are all, through Christ, children of God, reborn through faith, becoming brothers and sisters in this new family. And not only are we a spiritual family, but we're also together a spiritual temple, Peter says, you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. And I love this description of church because in a temple, every stone fits together to make the dwelling place of the Lord. And so here's, here's the key. We don't need a temple because we are the temple. Both individually, Paul says, there's two ways that we are a temple. Individually, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But when we come together, we also create a larger temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where God dwells. That's pretty cool. So when you're thinking of church, put it like this, when you and your four Christian friends meet for a picnic, you've created a dwelling place of the Lord because you are all indwelt by the Spirit of God. And as you pray together, you've created the dwelling place of the Lord. You have created church, the ecclesia. Paul writes this, in uh, in Ephesians, Let's see if I've got the right the right one here. He says, "Oh, sorry, I got the wrong translation. I got a different translation on the screen." Uh, Paul says, "So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. In Him, the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling." by the spirit. So as a spiritual family, as stones who form the temple of God, we need to discard this overly individualistic faith that we often veer into in a Western individualistic society. We are all shaped by the culture that we live in. And one of the things in our culture is this, especially in Western Canada, is this deep desire to be an individual, to be our own person. But because faith is meant to be practiced together as a family, as stones forming into a temple, as stones forming into a dwelling place of the Lord, that an individualistic faith is not really valid the way we think it is. Of course, you have a personal connection with Jesus. Of course, you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you cannot forsake the body. You cannot forsake the ecclesia. We see, as Brett McCracken says, the biblical image of the people of God is that we are stones being built into a dwelling place. And a dwelling place is not just one big stone, but many pieces of stone interlocked and fortified together. And it's not that these stones lose their individuality or their unique textures and shapes. The image being presented in Scripture is not one of, you know, prefab concrete blocks or or bricks being put together. It's, It's stones. If you think of, you know... Uh, sometimes you'll go across the prairies and you'll see down by the rivers where people built houses out of stone. And they grabbed big stones out of the river and they put them together into their interlocking ways. That's the image in scripture. So I'm a unique shape and Randall's a unique shape and John's a unique shape and, and we fit together into this house, this temple of the Lord. Our, our unique shapes complement each other to create a more structurally sound building. And what Brett McCracken says is that individualistic faith, where we think of it as like, I don't need this this family. I don't need this this body of, of the church. It's just me and Jesus. When we have individualistic faith, it shrinks our experience of God and saps the full power of the Spirit in our midst. We thrive most when we live out our faith in the presence of the family of God in all its weirdness and wonderful diversity. It's okay to be a little weird. We're all a little weird. It's all right. We, we love you in that. The picture that Paul and Peter paint of believers being joined together to create a holy space for God to dwell is really beautiful. And so we have to keep in mind as, we're, as we think about church that the dominant theme is this, this idea of family, that we're joined together because we belong to the family of God. We are truly brothers and sisters in the faith. In the ancient world, at the time when these letters are being written, the closest family bond was not the marriage and the nuclear family like it is today. That wasn't the closest family bond. Your closest bond was blood, right? Your brothers and your father especially. And, and it was like betraying your spouse was bad, but it wouldn't be as bad as betraying your brother because your spouse is just your spouse, but your brother is your blood, okay? So they really understood um, brother and sister to carry this deep weight because this is your, your family. This is your blood, So when Paul uses that phrase, brothers and sisters, I hope you're understanding that when they read it, they didn't just see it as, oh, brother, you know, brother John is here and sister Claire is here, whatever, and kind of just flowery language. He really meant a bond, like a a strong bond. This is my brother. We are bonded together. I wouldn't betray my brother. And so what's happening in in the early church is people are joining then a new family. By dying to their old lives and being raised to life in Christ, symbolized by baptism, they were truly being born into the family of God. They were brothers and sisters with all those who had also died to the old life and been raised to new life in Christ. Called out of the old and brought into the new, into the family of God so Jesus will say things like this. He'll say things like, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Another time, a man says he wants to follow Jesus, but he has, first he has to go home and bury his father who had died. And Jesus says, well, let the dead bury their own dead. And you go, whoa, this sounds really harsh. I'll, I, we try and soften these words, but I, and I will explain this a little bit. When Jesus says you must hate, Uh, your mother and your father. I'm going, well, that contradicts what he says, love. You know, love your neighbor, love your enemy. So what he really means is the ordering of your priorities. I think that's the proper interpretation. He's saying, I come first. Before your mother, before your father, before, which is crazy to say in the first century context. Like, I come ahead of your blood family. But that's what Jesus is saying. I'm first. Everything else is second, even your own life. And I think N.T. Wright is correct when he says the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing commands here is that he saw loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. Jesus was inviting people to actually kind of separate from that blood family and and come into a new family, a family not linked by genetics, but a family joined together in the spirit, in his spirit, which he would say is stronger than the bond of genetics, right? Right? And so, having that in mind, I think you're prepared to to understand and appreciate what it meant for the early Christians to refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in our culture, the word church often means like an organized and institutionalized religion that has a physical building. But for the early Christians, the church was not an institutional organization with a mortgage payment. The church was a living organism with a mission. The early church didn't even own buildings. They met in homes, like a family. I imagine, you know, if the church got to a certain size, they might be able to rent a larger space. Maybe they would purchase something down the road. But they were, you know, kind of despised and hated by the vast part of the culture. So they didn't have a lot of ability until about the 300s to to actually get church buildings. Before that, it was like, oh, you know, Lydia has a big house. We're going to meet in her home. She's got room for us, that type of idea. And I mention this because I, I really, truly believe that if we want to be a healthy church, we need to have the correct understanding of church. And so we understand then that the church is not an institution, and the church is not an organization, the church is not a building, and the church is not a religious service. The church is me and you and all God's people gathered together, wherever that happens to be. Wherever we meet, the church is meeting. When I meet with my three godly friends and, and we pray for a, a meal and, and pray for things going on, uh, the church is meeting. So the building is not the church. This is a convenient space for us to meet in. And we thank God we have it. But the church is a living organism made up of people living as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the early church, there was no concept of Jesus as, a, as only a personal savior. He is a personal savior, but sometimes in our individualistic faith, we reduce faith in Jesus to just a personal, it's just me and him, right? My faith is my own, it's private. There's really no concept of that. That phrase that you sometimes hear, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church, just simply didn't exist. Because when a person came to faith, they immediately joined the family that Jesus created. People became followers of Jesus by joining the ecclesia, the set apart community. And in this community, they became family, brothers and sisters of one another. As N.T. Wright puts it, he says, "...the early Christians did their best to live as an extended family, caring for each other in the way in which, in that world, extended families did." They called each other brother and sister and really meant it. They lived and prayed and thought like that, that they were children of the same father, following the same older brother, It's Jesus, sharing goods and resources where need arose. And when they talked about love, that's the main thing they meant, living as a single family, a mutually supporting community, and the church must never forget that calling. We're created to belong to that type of community. And the church family is at its best when it understands that we all minister to one another. We all serve one another. We spur one another onwards and walk through life together. That's how Jesus designed the church to function. Each of us ministers to each other. I minister to you out of my gifts. You minister to me out of your gifts. And we minister to one another out of the gifts that God has given us. As Paul says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. So when you come to worship on a Sunday morning, I would like for you to remember that you are not coming to church. You are the ecclesia. You are the called out assembly, the family of God. You're coming here to worship God, to serve one another, and to love one another in the way Christ loves you. It might even be helpful to change our language about coming to church. Like perhaps instead of saying we're going to church today, we should say we're going to be the church today. We're going to be the people of God today. What does that mean? That means we serve each other, we love each other, we walk with each other, we worship and pray together, and we serve with the gifts we've been given. I mean, if we really wanna be accurate, it'd be like we're gonna go be the Ecclesia today, but that's a bit of a, you know, we don't, do, <laughs> we don't speak Greek as much anymore. But I really believe this is key. Because when we think of church as simply a building that we come into and a service that we watch, we miss what Jesus really meant by his body, working together, loving one another. We, that's how you get into this place of going, well, that church is okay, but that church down the street is slightly better. You know, we miss that family dynamic. Joseph Hellerman, who's done... Quite a lot of research on the family life of the early church identified three family values that guide and should guide the family of believers. And so this is how we're going to kind of wrap up the sermon. I want to go through these family values. So here's the values. Number one, we share our stuff with one another. Number two, we share our hearts with one another. And number three, we embrace the pain and grow up with one another. And I'm just going to kind of flesh these out. So let's start here. We share our stuff with one another. The church in Jerusalem shared all that they had. Luke reports in Acts that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And the Apostle John puts it like this if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves we've passed from death to life. Can we just pause there? What is the proof that you've passed from death to life? If we love our brothers and sisters? But a person who has no love is still dead. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? I I understand that this church is incredibly generous with one another. And we've had people in this church that I know of give time and money to other people in the church family and outside this church family to help people in difficult circumstances. So I simply want to encourage you in your generosity, in your willingness to share with one another. But I also want to point out to you how important this biblical call to generosity is. Because John says if you don't help a brother or sister in need, how can God's love be in you? And it proves that we've passed from death to life when we love our brothers and sisters. It's pleasing to God when we use our resources to help our brothers and sisters. Secondly, we share our hearts with one another. We who fellowship and worship together are called to share our hearts with one another. We see how the Apostle Paul would share his heart with some congregations. You know, I think sometimes when you read Paul, you maybe get the sense that he's, he's kind of like a, you know, because he's so theologically rigorous and, and sometimes he calls people out in their sin and, and you might think that he's kind of a hard or harsh man, but he isn't. He shares his heart with these people. To the believers in Philippi, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I, long, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Can you just like, read that? Like, doesn't that kind of sound like a love letter? I, lo- I love and long for you, my beloved. That's how Paul viewed these people. I think that's kind of almost syrupy sweet. Like, I would probably never write a church letter like that. I, I long for you, you know? But that's that sharing of the heart that connects you, right? To the believers in Rome, he says, you need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. is sharing of heart with one another. And even though Paul traveled all over the Roman Empire, meeting with thousands of people, starting churches in multiple cities, he still developed these emotional attachments and deep connections with believers. He shared his heart with them. He raised to the Thessalonians saying, we cared so much for you that we are pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Now, full disclosure, I'm really bad at sharing my heart with people. I'm introverted and and I'm not really good at making deep emotional connections with people. But the truth is you can't minister to people if you don't love people. And you can't serve people if your motive isn't love. I mean, you can for a while, but it peters out. And so here's where the Holy Spirit comes in. I wouldn't be able to love you unless God empowered me to love you. And I thank God that he, he gives me that ability and that grace. Because I can't serve you if I don't love you. I can't minister to you if I don't love you, but you need to apply that as well to how you minister to one another in this body. You must love each other and share your heart with each other. Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you cannot love a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you've got to make it right. I think it's unacceptable for Jesus to have his body be split by hatred or bitterness. As Paul says, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. So maybe one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is what was our heart posture through the pandemic? Take delight in honoring each other. Love each other with genuine affection. It's hard to fully love people if you don't share your hearts with them. Imagine if I said I loved my wife, Lori, but I never told her anything about myself. If I never shared my hopes and my dreams and my fears with her, if I never shared my heart with her, she would say, you you don't really love me, I don't know anything about you. And so it's through the sharing of our hearts with one another that we grow in love for one another. And finally, we embrace the pain and we grow up together. There's a lot of different ways I could take this. So if I miss some, something, uh, but it comes to your mind, trust the Holy Spirit is bringing that to mind. But Joseph Hellerman says, one of the dangers in all this talk about community is the temptation to idealize the concept of the church as a family and fail to embrace the reality that doing family right is tough stuff at church and at home. It was difficult for Paul and it's difficult for us. We will likely experience as many failures as victories along the way. You know this. Within the church family, there's people you really connect well with and others who kind of annoy you. It's just like your biological extended family. I mean, you can't pick your family. And I would propose to you that once God has led you into a body of believers, if there's nothing unhealthy or, or wrong in that church, that you need to learn how to love one another. We need to learn how to love the people that, that we're not naturally drawn to. And there's going to be times sometimes in a family where someone says something hurtful to you. There's going to be times when somebody sins and they might need to be held accountable. There's, there's one principle where, you know, somebody says something kind of, you know, they're not thinking, they say something hurtful and, and we kind of go, you know what? Love overlooks a multitude of sins. I'm, I don't need to venture into this. I know they're going through some stuff. They said something stupid. I'm not going to, I'm going to forgive and, and, and release. There's other times when somebody sins against you in the body and you go, you know, I, I, I can't move past this. I'm gonna need to address this. It's not fun, but it's part of family life, right? That's why Paul will say things like this. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's the template for how you deal with people in the church. Sometimes they've pushed your buttons. Sometimes they've done something. You go, okay, we need to address this, but with compassion and humility and gentleness and patience. And we need to deal with each other when we've been wronged. If a brother or sister has sinned against you, Jesus says... If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And the Apostle Paul takes that as well and and he kind of says, listen, if someone is just in in your body being divisive and they will not listen and they will not forgive and they will not relent, They kind of are out of the family in a sense, not forever, but Paul and Jesus so value the family of the church that they say, if someone is just coming in to be divisive and toxic, they're going to destroy the family. So it's not really easy to do this, right? It's not easy to do this in a loving manner, but it's the high calling of the believer to love well, to deal with sin to walk humbly with one another and with God, and to go through painful times together just like any family does, but with a commitment to love, even in the hard times, right? Think of how you work in your marriage relationship, right? The first time your spouse does something that you, you really dislike, you're like, I'm out, I'm out, I don't like, I'm gone, right? We don't do marriage like that. I mean, some people do, but you shouldn't. We don't do marriage like that. Right? We have to work together. We have to work at it. We have to talk it out, clothing ourselves with humility and kindness and gentleness and patience. And we grow together. Sometimes, you know, we're called to love one another, we're called to encourage one another, and sometimes this means being able to help others break free from sin patterns. Paul says, "Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself." Again, this is that family dynamic. We embrace the pain and grow up together. And so instead of saying, "Boy, you're you're caught in sin and that's bad. You, you know, we cast you out." We say, "Hey, brother, Sister, can I, can I walk alongside you? I see you're struggling here and I just want to come alongside you and walk with you in this. None of this is easy but when you commit to walking together through the highs and the lows, you grow together. I think sometimes why churches don't have kind of deep connection and, and deep love for one another is because we don't want to walk together through the pain. We're very quick to say, I'm out. I didn't like what you said the last two weeks. I'm, I'm, I'm out of there. And I go, I don't know if you're going to build family if you're so willing to, to take off. Joseph Hellerman says it best when he says this, Do not be surprised to discover that it is hard and often downright painful to live out the church family model. After all, look at how much frustration and even failure Paul himself encountered trying to get members of his congregations to live in harmony together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We set ourselves up for great disappointment if we over-idealize the concept of the church as a surrogate family. So what he's saying is it's hard to do this. And, and we don't wanna, you know, here's sometimes people are pained by the church because they kind of over-idealize it. They go, they, they should just love me, you know, and, and, and we should, but the reality is we're human. And sometimes we say stupid things. And sometimes we do things that we didn't mean to do. And we need to work with one another. And we need to grow in love for one another and build our family stronger. And I do believe the bond between people is strengthened when they actually sit down and talk and work out their issues. And I believe God is honored when brothers and sisters in Christ hold each other accountable and walk closely with one another and seek to resolve conflict with each other, all done because of our great love for one another. As Paul says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. And that's always my question when I'm dealing with people going, am I doing what I can to live in peace? So here's just some challenges for you to consider as we close. Some things to think about as you're part of this church family. Is there somebody in need that I could help with either my time or my resources? Am I willing to walk in transparency and be vulnerable with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there someone I'm holding a grudge or bitterness towards that I need to speak to? Where do my gifts fit into this church and are they being used and have I offered them to the church? I'm gonna call the worship team up and as, as they're getting ready, I'm just gonna leave you with a, a final word and a scripture. So the final word is this, reunited through faith in Jesus, reunited by his Holy Spirit. We're not united by political preference, denominational leanings or secondary theological convictions or any other personal preference or opinion. We are one in Jesus. As Paul says, I beg you, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there's one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, help us to love. Help us to be gracious with each other's faults. Help us to pursue peace and love with one another. Help us to deal with any lingering anger or resentment that we might have against a brother or sister. Help us to have hearts that are willing to forgive. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bind us evermore together in Christ. I pray that we would have one heart and one mind and one faith. And so, Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would do what humans cannot do, that by your spirit at work in us, you would increase our love for one another. And that you would help us to walk humbly with one another. And that we would serve one another as you have served us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.